On today's show, we're joined by Gavin Shaw, host of Locked on Knicks, to discuss Team USA not even meddling in FIBA World Cup action, as well as how the FIBA experiences helped Jalen Brunson and RJ Barrett. Then we'll chat with Andy Kamenetsky, host of Locked on Lakers. The Lakers signed Christian Wood to a two-year deal. How does Wood fit with LeBron and AD, and what will his role be for the Lakers? And then lastly, we'll have Ryland Stiles, host of Locked on Thunder, on to talk about the NBA Coach of the Year odds with Thunder's Mark Dagnall as the favorite to win the award who is his biggest competition dark horse picks to receive the honors and so much more it's all coming up right here at locked on nba you are locked on nba your daily nba podcast part of the locked on podcast network your team every day What's up and welcome to another Monday edition of Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts. I'm your Monday host, Jackson Gatlin, also host of Locked On Rockets right here on the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every single day. And as always, thank you so much for making Locked On NBA part of your day every single day, whether it's on the way to work, on your lunch break, in the gym. Thank you so much for making Locked On NBA part of your day every single day. Joining us now is the host of Locked On Knicks, Gavin Shaw. You can track down wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube to search Locked On Knicks. Gavin, Team USA failing to medal at all in FIBA World Cup action the second time now that they've left FIBA action without receiving any medal honors. What should the headline be for Team USA after not getting a medal at all, after going in as the expected favorites for the tournament? I think it's just that this is the reality of international basketball now. And and look, you can you can point fingers. You can say this is the failing of specific guys. You could say this is a failing of roster construction, which I've, I've argued to some extent and, and just bringing too many offensively focused players. But ultimately, this is what it is, right? Like I, I rewind to the redeem team years and, and with everyone, right, with D-Wade, with LeBron, uh, with Kobe, they were barely beating those Spain teams. And you, you can argue that, well, maybe they're not playing teams as, as talented as that Spain team, but um, this, this has been the case pretty much since 2002 when the U S finished, I, th- I think sixth in that world cup in Indianapolis, right? Like, like we are like, it, it's, it's kind of been a delayed effect for everyone to catch up with that being the reality of the basketball world. And I, I think part of that is, is just the differences between FIBA ball and NBA ball in terms of rules, the literal differences with the actual basketball, the added camaraderie that other teams have. But for whatever reason, international play, the the advancement in NBA talent, and I, I want to make it clear, other countries have not caught up to the U.S. in that respect. There's 450 players in the NBA. 330 of them are from America. America is still dominant in terms of NBA basketball, but it hasn't been the case in international ball for a long time, un- unless we send our best. Yeah, if there's one silver lining to Team USA kind of struggling this go around is that next year for the Olympics, it feels like we might get every, you know all the stars really turning out kind of almost a, a redeem team esque type thing, if you will, next time around. I, I will, you know, and I do agree, right? It's the international teams, right? They just have this this camaraderie, this cohesion that you don't really get from Team USA basketball, unfortunately, because these guys aren't constantly playing together year round. They're not always around each other. They're just you know a team of players that are incredibly talented, but they are kind of thrown together, you know, last minute, if you will. Rudy Gay even tweeted out. He said. He thinks Team USA should really go back to tryouts. And I'm imagining what that would even look like, just having players actually have to put forth their bet rather than hand-picking players, but, you know, forcing them to actually go through tryouts and, you know, potentially being cut from Team USA because then maybe you play with a bit more of a chip on your shoulder. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think I don't know if guys egos are going to allow that. Like, I, <laughs> I, think you're, I think you're getting no one. You're, you're going back to Eric Micah, who's, who's an intern for some financial company right now on the team. But, <laughs> but I, I like I like the spirit of it. And 
yeah, look, that's that's just part of the inherent challenge. And with AAU culture, like these guys do have some reps together and they do have some moments together. But again, you look at that redeem team, like the last time you want to say like US basketball was just, I mean, dominant to some extent. And those were guys that not only grew up playing together with that Wade, James, Bosch, even, even Dwight Howard, Chris Paul generation, but there was also an element of like they did commit three or four straight summers. Like they were there um, losing to Greece in, in, in that World Cup. And I believe 2005 and then they were back in 2008 and a lot of that group was back in 2012. And since then, there's been just a lot more turnover and it, it's hard to get that together in a short amount of time. And you, and you see it in big moments of games, right? In the closing moments against Germany, like Anthony Edwards tried to zip that pass to Jaron Jackson Jr. Went out of his hands and like the, the, in overtime, Mikhail Bridges had a throw and then had to dribble off his foot. And, and you just see the, these things that rely on incredible split second timing and, and the U.S. just isn't, isn't quite there for it. And in turn, you get a lot of isolation, heavy play. And the U.S. is good enough to keep games close doing that because they have so much talent, but not good enough to win against the best teams in the world. Yeah, it doesn't always feel like a team game when you're watching Team USA, unfortunately. The individual talent is there, but it almost feels like just advanced AAU at times for Team USA. And that, that's problematic when you're going up against teams like Serbia, like Canada even. Even Team Canada felt like they had a bit more cohesion than than Team USA did this go-around. Uh, Shout-out to Dylan Brooks, who had a monster game against Team USA, hitting seven of eight three-pointers. Uh, that was arguably one of the most exciting games of the tournament, the bronze medal game. It was really disappointing, though, that we had so many players sitting out for Team USA in a bronze medal game that, you know, due to illness, Paolo Bancaro, uh, Jaron Jackson Jr., and Brandon Ingram missing that game. You know, I don't, not a great look at the end of the day, unfortunately, but it is what it is. USA doesn't meddle. But at the forefront of Team USA action, and as well as Team Canada action, we got a couple New York Knicks, Jalen Brunson, RJ Barrett, to you, Gavin, what has this experience meant to and what has this experience done for those two guys, seeing them compete in FIBA action this offseason? How have you seen them kind of grow from, from these experiences? Yeah, I'll start with RJ because obviously it's a more positive tournament for him and, and it ended on such a high with him hitting what was essentially the dagger um, to put this game away against the United States. I, I think what, what, what first put RJ right kind of on the scene is the top prospect in high school basketball. And he, he might've been in the mix for the top ranking before this, but I think he dropped something like 38 points in the United States. It was either U 17 or U 18 tournament. And, and I think it was one of the first times Canada had ever upset the U S and it was sort of like, Oh wow, this, this dude is for real. Right. He, he just kind of went in and towards the U S and it, it's sort of the same quality that in the best sense defines his game now. And that's an endless sense of optimism and self-confidence, no matter what goes right, what goes wrong for RJ, like that same swagger, is always there. And I think that was very present throughout this tournament for Canada. The other thing is like, he, he just looks to be in amazing shape and the athleticism and his ability to get these dunks where his head's at the rim in the half court. You really haven't seen that from him um, since his time at Duke. So I'm hoping that translates and I'm hoping basically some of the shot making he showed for Canada with some of the unselfishness he showed in the next postseason run coalesces into one improved player for the New York Knicks. Jalen Brunson, more of a mixed bag, right? Got so much hype coming into this tournament. Steve Kerr was, was describing him even before they described Anthony Edwards as the alpha on this team. And I think the biggest disappointment for Brunson was you, you see how much value he loses when he's not allowed to be the number one guy. And, and I don't know how relevant that is because on the Knicks, he, he obviously is the clear cut number one guy and showed it in, in kind of the fires of the NBA playoffs. He's more than capable of doing that. But when you take him off the ball, when, when you challenge him to be more of a facilitator, that's just not totally his game. And that's not to say he didn't have good moments passing the ball, particularly he obviously has great chemistry with Mikhail Bridges, great chemistry with Josh Hart. Um, but 
just not quite enough juice there as an off the ball weapon. And that's a part of his game. I, I hope as his career goes on, like he continues to work on it, continues to become a bit more of a movement shooter and be able to leverage his other abilities. But it's nothing really to worry about with Jalen. He'll be in great shape to start the year. I'm just disappointed he didn't have more of a signature moment because I, I thought it was going to be a breakout in that sense for him. Yeah, getting getting him off ball a little bit more, you know, he's a guy that obviously thrives so much when you put the ball in his hands and it's tough to kind of want to, you know, maybe take away the element of what he's so good at and put him in that uncomfortable position of like, okay, hey, we need you to try and iron out this, you know, work on this other part of your game. But it's like, but I'm so good at this other part of my game. Why are you going to make me do something that I'm not comfortable with? I mean, do you have an, do you think there's a world where the Knicks could really benefit from Jalen being more of an off ball presence, even though his role on the team is clearly put the ball in his hands, let him run the offense. I just think over the course of the regular season and even in the playoffs, it would be nice for him to get some reps, like attacking a scramble defense, which mm. last year, like it's incredible how efficient he is given that. I mean, especially you look at the playoffs, like he had four heat defenders staring him down every single play. It was like RJ Barrett's out there. Josh Hart's out there. We don't care. Um, we, we just care about Jalen. And I, I think that comes down to him. I mean, one closing games with Emmanuel quickly, which we saw in the regular season, not so much in the playoffs and, and Quentin Grimes, uh, a, a Houston guy, Jackson, um, becoming a little bit more explosive um, in terms of his ability to win one-on-one from a stagnant position and create those opportunities for Jalen Brunson. Obviously you want to see it from RJ Barrett. You want to see it from Julius Randle. That's just not so much those guys' game while quickly and Grimes are more comfortable spraying it. And I think it could make Brunson even more efficient. Like he's such a good catch and shoot three-point shooter, getting more reps there and, and being able to attack a hard closeout and getting an easy win off the dribble instead of having to work so hard for everything. I think that'll help preserve him long-term and, and keep him hyper-efficient. What will Team USA ultimately look like down the line after what was ultimately a disappointing tournament run this go-round? How will Jalen Brunson and RJ Barrett take this FIBA experience and translate it back to the New York Knicks? You're, you're going to have us cover for all of that and more over at Locked on Knicks. Gavin, I appreciate you stopping by Locked on NBA with me. Thanks for having me, Jackson. Coming up, Christian Wood signs a two-year deal with the Los Angeles Lakers. How will he fit with LeBron and AD? What is his role on this Lakers team? We're going to get there in just one moment. First, today's episode is brought to you by Ibotta. Look, groceries are already super expensive, so why don't you get a little bit of cash back in your pocket for all that cash that you're shelling out next time you head to the grocery store? Ibotta gives you cash back on hundreds of grocery items from produce to personal care to pantry goods, so you can make sure you're beating inflation no matter what you're purchasing. Just link your loyalty account or upload your receipt after you shop and get your cash back. It's that simple. Other apps give you points that don't really amount to much, but with Ibotta, you get cash back that you can use to cash out to your bank account, PayPal, or even gift cards. You earn cash back on hundreds of online brands, retailers with Ibotta, including Lowe's, Macy's, Sephora, Best Buy, and so many more. Right now, Ibotta is offering our listeners $5 just for trying Ibotta by using code LOCKED when you register. Just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app and use code LOCKED. That's Ibotta, I-B-O-T-T-A, in the Google Player App Store and use code LOCKED. And continuing on here at Locked On NBA Monday. As always, thank you so much for making Locked On NBA part of your day every single day. Free and available wherever you listen to your podcasts, including YouTube. Joining us now is the host of Locked On Lakers, Andy Kamenetsky, who you can track down wherever you listen to your podcasts. And on YouTube, just search Locked On Lakers. Andy, Christian Wood signing a two-year deal with the Lakers. Second year, player option. The LA Lakers, the next in a long line of teams that have convince themselves that Christian Wood is the answer 
to their problem. So immediate reaction, good or bad signing for the Lakers? Well, I mean, the good news, first of all, for the Lakers is that he doesn't actually need to be Christian Wood, the solution to all their problems, <laughs> which, I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways is a different situation than, say, Dallas or Houston or even going back to Detroit, where Christian Wood first broke out like as a full-time, you know, full rotational NBA player. I think there was a lot more anchored um, in terms of the importance on the team with Christian Wood, which isn't to say that I think Christian Wood isn't important for the Lakers, because I actually think this roster spot and him joining the team is important, but they're not necessarily looking to build anything around Christian Wood. If Christian Wood plays really well this season, he is almost certainly not going to be a Laker the following season because of CBA rules, everybody will be able to outbid the Lakers, assuming you know there's a market for Christian Wood. But this is a real opportunity for him to show that he can be more than just an empty calories scorer on a lousy team, which fair or not, and I think in certain respects, probably both, that is Christian Wood's reputation. No, abs absolutely. I mean, it's it's perfect because you're saying it's you know he's not an important piece, but if you know maybe if things work well, well he's, then he's not important. <laughs> he uh, he's important, but he's not what the team is built around. You good, know good. I mean? like yeah, that, that's that's already step number one in convincing yourself that the signing of Christian Wood was good for well, your team. He's, I mean, he is not the solution. Like they they were not lacking big man play, like front court play. And then they said, let's put all this on Christian Wood. The Lakers already have AD. They've got LeBron. They've got Rui Hachimura. They've got, you know, Torian Prince. They've got Jared Vanderbilt. Like they've got a lot of guys, you know, Jackson Hayes, if he can finally really get his proverbial stuff together uh, as a young player now, you know, on, on, a, on a second opportunity. You know, there are front court options with this team. You know, Christian Wood, I think, is a talented guy, and, and I think he absolutely has a role with this team, and it's an important one. But the Lakers are not going to be necessarily dependent on Christian Wood to have success, but he's somebody that maybe can push them over the top. So what what do you envision that role being for Christian Wood then? With um, I, I envision him as the backup center, coming off the bench, I would be surprised and frankly alarmed if he started just not even so much about Christian Wood because he and Anthony Davis, I think, can play very well off each other. Um, you know, certainly offensively, I think they complement each other extremely well. Defensively, it's a wash in the sense that Christian Wood doesn't really complement anyone defensively so in that sense it doesn't really matter who but, you're but pairing a, him up but with but ad's kind of the t the type of big that can maybe make up for a little bit of woods you know shortcomings absolutely defensively. absolutely and that would that would be you know i i think one of the things anticipated with putting them together but the, the two of them i think actually can play together and likely will but i think it would be more with second units because if those two are the starting four and five that means lebron is playing the three and defensively I think that's an absolute non-starter. Offensively, you could have some issues with, you know, LeBron and AD not providing enough spacing, but defensively, I just you can't have LeBron play the 3. And there's no way I think to really 
you know, jigger this thing to make it work in ways that frankly are even worth it. I don't, I don't know why you would do it in the first place, but I think Christian Wood can be, you know, the pro the first, maybe the first big off the bench, you know, certainly one of the first players to come in once the game started. And I think he can play a really important role as one of the focal points offensively with that second unit. Now, but we know that AD has had this like resentment towards playing the five, you know, throughout his career. So do you not view this move or even, you know, the addition of Jackson Hayes as kind of these moves to where maybe he doesn't have to play at the five as much next year? I know you talked about, you know, starting Christian would probably be a mistake at this point, but you know, how do we kind of factor that into this whole situation? Or do you fully expect them to kind of run LeBron back at the four again? Um, I mean, to some degree, it depends on how you're defining as much in terms of how, you know, will he be playing it as much? You know, last year, Anthony Davis played 100% of his minutes at center last year. So if this year with Christian Wood there and him playing with Wood as part of like a second unit group, if AD played, say, 15 to 20% of his minutes at the four, you know, that's less. That would be trying to meet Anthony Davis, if not halfway, part of the way. I think it is impossible to meet him halfway, much less all the way, because AD is going to be playing the majority of his minutes with LeBron. And I don't think it is possible to play the majority of his minutes at LeBron without, I mean, at with LeBron without playing center, because I just don't think you can make LeBron a three defensively. I mean, it's not even great offensively, but defensively, it's an issue. Like, honestly, at this point, LeBron defensively is more ideal as an undersized center than he is a small forward. So I just, I feel like you can give AD a little more of what he wants. Um, truth be told, I think a lot of this is about making AD feel heard. And I think it's important that he feels heard. He's one of the superstars of this team. He's their focal point, certainly for the future. And he's their franchise face moving forward. But in a lot of ways, not getting what he wants right now, it's really more about LeBron, I think, than AD himself. I mean, you can argue that maybe you know, four years since they won that championship with him playing at least, you know, about half of his minutes at the, at the four, I don't, I, you know, I don't know if AD necessarily is as physically equipped himself to play as much four as I think he would like to. But again, LeBron, I think is the factor here that often gets overlooked. It's really not about AD. It's more about LeBron. You've mentioned those concern, the concerns, right, about not being able to play LeBron at the three, you know, and maybe more so that's the bigger issue here than, you know, AD playing the five at the end of the day. At this point, then, just as you're kind of envisioning what this situation looks like with Christian Wood, do you expect there to be more success with the LeBron-Wood lineups where it's those two guys playing, those two-man lineups, or the Wood-AD lineups having more success? Um, I think they both actually can be pretty successful. I mean, some of this is going to depend on who else is on the floor, but LeBron and AD are two guys who can play with anybody. Um, and I I picture more time with Christian Wood and AD than LeBron and Wood, just because I I, I feel like you're get you're giving AD more potentially of what he wants if he's playing just with Wood as opposed to you know the time out there with Christian Wood and and I think they're going to be looking to try to reduce LeBron and AD's minutes anyway. Um, and that's part of 
I think one of the great things about this team now being quite deep. I mean, there this is a really deep roster, these Lakers, with a lot of skill players. And, you know, as far as the idea of like trying to load manage LeBron or AD, I, I think the West is going to be too tough for them to try to get in at least the top six and avoid the play-in while giving these guys nights off for just non-specific maintenance as opposed to an injury. But I think with Christian Wood now in the mix and Rui and D'Angelo Russell and Austin Reeves, like they've got a lot of guys now that can create for others, can create their own shots. And hopefully it just allows LeBron and AD to play maybe three to four minutes less each game. That adds up over the course of a season. Like that's a really big deal, particularly for LeBron. How will Christian Wood ultimately work out with the Lakers? Will the added depth help the Lakers in their pursuit of locking in one of those top six playoff seeds? You're going to just cover for all of that and more over at Locked On Lakers. Andy, I appreciate you stopping by Locked On NBA with me. Anytime, man. Coming up, NBA Coach of the Year favorites heading into next season. OKC Thunder's Mark Dagnall, currently the favorite to win the award. Who is his biggest competition? Dark Horse picks to walk away with the honors and more. It's all coming up in just one moment. And final segment here at Locked on NBA Monday. Be sure to stay tuned in throughout the week right here at Locked on NBA as we have you covered for all the news, rumors, and analysis heading back into the NBA season just a month away now. Joining us now is the host of Locked on Thunder, Ryland Styles. You can track down wherever you listen to your podcast and on YouTube. Just search Locked on Thunder here for our FanDuel Coach of the Year odds. The favorites going this upcoming NBA season to win the Coach of the Year award and leading the pack is none other than OKC Thunder's Mark Dagnault uh, coming in at plus 750 to win the award. Now, we're going to navigate the other names here on this list here in just one moment, but Ryland, first things first, I mean, what just right from the jump, what needs to happen this season for the Thunder for Mark Dagnall to, to actually win Coach of the Year? Well, they have to take another win leap, which is going to be hard in and of itself. It, it was hard to get to the 16 win leap. That doesn't happen very often in the NBA. Now you've got to go on at least, a, I'd say at least a five-game win increase. That puts you at uh, 45 wins for the season, uh, which is a, a tough task. I think that a lot of the times with the Thunder, nationally and locally, it can be discussed that, oh, it'll be easy because they have such a great young core and, and, and they have uh, these great young pieces, which is true, but sometimes uh, you can look a lot better on the floor and not translate to wins quite yet for such a young team. So I do think he should be the favorite because the pathway there on paper is very easy, but we all know the game's not played on paper, so he's got to go execute, at, I'd say, at least a five-win increase, and that, and that would lift them, I think, out of the play-in tournament. And so if they can get into the top six seed uh, in the regular season of the Western Conference, I think that he will win Coach of the Year. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder, right, does OKC's you know playoff appearance this past season kind of help or hurt uh, Dagnall in the sense of, you know, just as far as expectations are concerned, right, where that bar is, is at for the Thunder? Yeah, I, I think that doing it last year almost hurts in the case of individually winning the Coach of the Year award. I think he would have won it last year had Mike Brown not snapped the Kings playoff record. If that, if that storyline was not on the table, Mark is the coach of the year last year. Uh, but in terms of expectation level uh, for him specifically as terms of just a general coach, I, I think that last year was a really good stepping stone uh, for such a young coach to get experience down the stretch coaching meaningful basketball. This is a guy that got promoted straight from the G League and prior to his G League stint with the Blue did not have head coach experience uh, necessarily in terms of running a 
a team in general. So from assistant to G League head coach to now NBA head coach and looks like the guy for the job long term, I think it was great for him individually and great for the team to actually get to uh, that play in that tournament last year. Now, some of the other names that we have on the uh, FanDuel Coach of the Year uh, odds list, we've got Eric Spolster coming in right behind Mark Dagnall at plus 950, Jason Kidd at plus 1,200, Joe Mazzula at plus 1,400, and also Frank Vogel plus 1,400, kind of rounding out the top five names. Now, it doesn't have to be one of those names on that list, Ryland. You could go a little bit further down. You could go elsewhere around the NBA landscape, but who do you kind of picture as the most likely candidate, the most likely threat to Mark Dignall to take the coach of the year award for themselves this upcoming season? Another coach who's kind of in a, in a good position to make a run at that award. Yeah, I think that Mark is in the best position, obviously, according to the odds and also just according to logic. I mean, this is an award that is nearly entirely based on narrative and storyline. And so when you factor that in, it's going to be so easy to thunder for as much as they're going to improve, still only have eight nationally televised games, not including NBA TV. So they're not going to be on TV overly too much for the uh, national casual fans. And so voters who want to kind of flex their muscles of what they've been watching are going to side with the Thunder if they can win, like I said, five games, four games more than last year, or even better than that. They could go on a, a Kings-like run and solidify this thing entirely. But I think that any improvement outside of the play-in tournament would lock up the award. And even a play-in tournament appearance could get him the award, given how tough the West is. But I do think that his biggest challenger is in that top ranking that you listed off. It's Jason Kidd to me, because I know that he's already taken the Mavericks to the Western Conference Finals, but we did just say it's a narrative-based award. And what bigger narrative than if the Mavericks have a successful season, which is the only way that he can win Coach of the Year, that would mean that he got Luka and Kyrie on the same page, and he's handling the newfound depth on this team with Steph Curry, uh, and with, with Seth Curry, I wish they had Steph Curry, with Steph Curry uh, and the rest of this roster. Uh, if he can get that combination cooking in the West, I think that he can be in line to win that award because of we look at Kyrie Irving in such a specific way right now as a player that obviously from them to have a good season, he'd be on the same page with Luka and it'll all work out after that trade kind of got passed for the last half year. So I think that he might be the other coach who has the inside edge storyline wise. Yeah, it's, it is one of those awards, right, where you just, the NBA likes to kind of, especially with these individual awards, like to latch onto those individual stories, those narrative-based kind of, uh, you know, I guess, storylines, that kind of thing. And for Jason Kidd, if he's able to kind of right the ship in Dallas, so to speak, then I, I guess that does give him a little bit more room to operate because you have the Mavericks missing the playoffs this last go around. If he can bring them back and bring them back in a strong way, if they could finish, you know, top four, even maybe top six in the West might be enough to generate, you know, some buzz behind him to give him enough of a push to be in that final bracket. Uh, you know, one of the finalists, at least for the award, if not walking home with it himself, if Mark Dagnall does not take it uh, for the Thunder. Who do you think could be an interesting dark horse candidate for this award, though? Somebody further down on that list. My, my eyes and, and my bias points me a little bit to Ime Odoka at plus 1,900 to win the award. And again, it's, it's kind of one of those things where Ime has so much room to work with because of how bad the Rockets have been for so long that, I, you know, if he takes the Rockets and if somehow they make a jump where they're like even flirting with the play-in or if they make the play-in and then they maybe even make a playoff spot for some reason, then that could be enough juice to be like, okay, well, hey, the Rockets have been the laughing stock of the NBA for the last three years. Let's give the award to the guy who actually got them back to the playoffs and still to that point, hasn't missed the playoffs in his career. That's been Ime's. He's been very vocal about that for the Rockets. Who to you stands out as a dark horse candidate to come out this next season and win the award, or at least be a finalist for the award, Rylan? Yeah, so I'd have two dark horses. Co-dark horses would be either 
who you had as your number one, or Jamal Mosley. I think that one of those two teams, either the Rockets or the Magic, are going to take a Thunder-like jump. And it's it's not necessarily that they're going to take a huge jump individually alone. It'll be a mixture of them taking a jump individually. And also, as we get down the stretch of the season, as we saw last year, these more veteran-related teams are not going to care about fighting for that last play-in tournament the same way Houston will, the same way Orlando will. So like last year, the Thunder uh, saw the Mavericks punt on the last week of the season to where that became a much less stressful week on a young team uh, whenever they didn't even have to win to get in necessarily because the, Ma- the Mavericks kept on losing. So uh, I think that you're going to see either Houston or Orlando make a big enough win increase where if any team shuts it down that we think right now are contenders and we get to the end of the season and they're, and they're no longer contenders and they shut it down, they're going to be in prime position to take that play-in tournament jump to where they will uh, kind of leapfrog Mark. They'll be the latest and greatest story, and it'll be sort of like voters saying, hey, we gave Mark his credit last year as runner-up. These guys are the new kids on the block. And that goes back to the original question of, I think that the only thing that was wrong with last year's season was that Mark didn't win Coach of the Year because it sets him back in that race. If there's if there's going to be a new leap from somebody, they now jump him in the pecking order to win that individual award. But that's the only thing that really happened bad last year for the Thunder is that he individually now will have to fight a little bit harder for that award because his storyline did play out to get him runner-up and Coach of the Year. Will Mark Dagnall ultimately win Coach of the Year for the OKC Thunder? What will the Thunder look like next season? How big of a jump will they need to take for him to be in the running for the award again? You're going to have us covered for all of that and more over at Locked on Thunder. Rylan, I appreciate you stopping by Locked on NBA with me. Thanks, Jackson. That's going to do it for another Monday edition of Locked On NBA. As always, thank you so much for checking out the show. If you haven't done so yet, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to your podcast. That's Apple, Spotify, Google, the Odyssey app, free and available on all podcast platforms. We're also available on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, search Locked On NBA. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. But as always, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to having you back right here at Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts.